I want to say just a special word. It's so good to have Trevor here tonight. I appreciate you coming out and uh, helping us get started here. Uh, and uh, it's fun to see a lot of folks just start sticking their hand up in the air and saying, yeah, how can I help? And, uh, uh, you know, when you start praying about things and you go, I have no idea how this is all going to come together, but it does. And to, to, to which I'm truly grateful. Um, so we're using a lot of like borrowed sound system and stuff. Uh, so if words look too small and sound feels poor, welcome to day one. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit tonight uh, uh, about something that I feel like is part of my DNA and what I think is also part of a transformational process, but we'll get there. Um, many of you, I mean, all of us, I mean, who doesn't know of the Beatles? They, they, they are one of those pivotal musical groups that, that created a whole new trajectory in music. And they were one of those bands that set, kind of set a whole new genre out. Um, but they recorded 12 albums between the years 1963 and 1970. But it was somewhere right in the middle of there that they kind of reached this point where they were tired. They were fed up of traveling. And it was really interesting to see this interview that came out. It was this anthology, and it was George and Paul and Ringo, and they're sitting around a table, and they were talking about how, th how difficult things have become. And what they began talking about was um, they felt like we had gotten so worse and worse while all the people were screaming. And he said, he said, they liked us, and it was lovely that they liked us, but we couldn't hear to play. In other words, they couldn't hear the music anymore. They needed to get back into the studio. And so eventually what they did is they finished up their tour in that fall, and then they went back in the studio. And they were working to redefine or refine their sound. It was like a rediscovery. I don't know if you go through these journeys in life where you kind of have to recalibrate, but they went back to the studio. After that time, they ended up releasing four more of their final albums. Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Heart, Band Club, uh, Yellow Submarine, uh, Abbey Road, and Let It Be some of the most iconic, most well-known, maybe arguably their best music. The best was yet to come, even though they reached this sort of halfway point and went, oh my gosh, we are sick of this and we can't even hear the music anymore. I would say this, the music is why we gather. Maybe another way for that is the faith is why we gather. And for us, the faith that we all hold so near and so dear, the faith that we cling to is something that gets so quickly lost amidst the noise and the demands of our lives, and we need a way to be able to pull back and to recalibrate. Does it not feel that sometimes we feel like we've lost sort of these bearings? Our prayers feel like they hit the ceiling, and we, our sort of study of God's word feels incredibly dry and then we go into cubicle world or we go into sales or whatever we do we walk into the classroom with all these little kids and we feel like God is the furthest thing from this environment or my heart 
or is that just my own confession? You just missed a really good chance to say amen, I think. I think. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just guessing here. So <clears throat> I think what's needed for all of us is a chance to refine our groove, to refine our rhythm, if you will, so that we can stay in step with God. Because it's not that God went anywhere. It's that somehow we've allowed other things to crowd out that voice. And in the midst of everything screaming around us, it's so easy to lose that voice. So here's what I want to do. I'm talking about a couple of things tonight. And one of them comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And I would start by simply saying, I think we all have a desire to grow. And most of us have an idea, whether it's a good strategy or not, most of us have an idea about how we want to grow particular areas of our lives. So if you say, I want to be this in life, you usually have a career path that you're going to follow. So we know how to maybe build your career. You know how to build maybe net worth, or at least you have an idea that you want to, and so there's this desire that motivates effort. And so maybe you say, well, I want to get in shape this year. I want to be work on my health. So we create a path to have kind of health uh, and proper health and good health and good nutrition and all this stuff. So we have this idea about how we're going to kind of create this growth path in life. But what happens when we get to our spiritual lives? Do we have a sense of how we can recalibrate or grow our lives in faith? Because what happens year after year, trial after trial, is that it starts to feel rote if all we keep doing is doing the same thing we've always done. And then we kind of stick our hands up in the air and go, where are you, God? And so I would suggest to you that there's a way I think we can live. And I'm not trying to create a whole new set of disciplines, a whole new set of things to do. What I'm talking about is living a life that feels like faith integrates into the center of what we do. Let me start out with this verse. You might be familiar with it, but it comes to us out of this book written to this small church, this new church in Ephesus. And there's this guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, and he writes these words as sort of the Godfather. He's the one that started. He's the one that cobbled together a group of people. They start meeting in homes, and he writes to them knowing full well of the context in which they're living. And that's really significant. We'll get to that in a minute. But let me just start by reading these words from the Apostle Paul. And he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Gift of God. I'm sorry. I can't. Good good by works. So that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance to do. Now, let me just call your attention to a couple of things. Central to the Christian understanding is this idea of grace. What does grace mean? When we get to the Greek, we understand that grace translates charos, where we would get the word charisma. So grace at its core level is simply a gift. If some of you walk into a live music venue and you see someone who just has the it factor, if some of you watch American Idol, it's the last season, I hope you're doing okay with that, Um, you understand when someone has it, it could just be defined as charisma the charis, the gift. It's nothing that they necessarily cultivated. It's nothing necessarily that they studied up on. It's something that they either had 
or didn't have. This is the gift and central to the Christian understanding is that all of life is a gift. All that we have is a gift. All that we are is simply a gift. And that's how God bestows upon us. And so everything then is connected to a God who made us. Now, let me just qualify a couple of things because I think it's really good to give a commentary on what happens in culture. In culture, in, in, in faith and in, in Christianity, we talk about grace. Culture would talk about things like having bad juju or bad karma. When you talk about karma, what you're doing is you're contrasting what is good versus what is positive. And so when karma, it's like if I do enough good, it will outweigh somehow the bad in our lives. And, and can I just say, that's really bad theology because sometimes we begin to adopt that into our thinking. And what we begin to do at that point is we try and make ourselves more presentable, more lovable, more acceptable to a God who already accepts us, who already loves us. Paul writes to this young church, these young Christians, and he says, it's by grace that you have been saved. Now, what's interesting is I think there's a little bit more to the text that's going on, and it, it, makes, it makes sense for us to know it. See, grace is about a God who comes to us, uh, not us working or striving to get to him. That's a really hard thing to get your mind around if you aspire to be an A student if you have control tendencies, if you have any amount of perfectionism. Now, let me just kind of spell this out a little bit. When, God, when Paul writes to them, he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus in advance to do these good works. The word that he gets workmanship could be directly translated poema in the Greek. Poema simply referring to a poem. Let me translate it for us tonight, simply saying we, you, are God's artwork. You are his work of art. You are his masterpiece. You are a piece of work. No, it doesn't actually say that, but there is this beautiful picture that God is painting over who you are, and I think a lot of times it sits in contrast to who we think we are, and he says, you have been saved by grace, and you are God's work of art. Now, what's interesting is what's going on in Ephesus at this time. You have this city, a kind of cosmopolitan melting pot of a city. It is on uh, the coast, so it has got a lot of industry, a lot of ships that sail in. So you can imagine, not only is it a melting pot of trade, but it's got a lot of financial resources. It's, it's, a, it's a hub, um, but with all that trade and with all those ships coming from afar, you also get a diversity of thought and opinion and of faith. In fact, people would take pilgrimages to get to the city of Ephesus because there was one goddess who stood out among all the rest, and that was the goddess Artemis. Artemis was clearly defined everywhere in the city. In fact, she would have lots of inscriptions and lots of sculptures, lots of carvings, lots of statues. Artemis was the goddess. In fact, she was often depicted with a bow. She was the huntress and often with a deer because she was the goddess of the wildlife and of the hunt and of the wilderness. But she was also the goddess of childbirth and virginity. 
she covered a lot of ground. The Roman equivalent to her would be Diana, which might say, oh, we get from her Wonder Woman. No, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, but you have this very strong influence that Paul has entered into, cobbled together a group of believers meeting in a home and saying, we think that there's a different way, maybe a better way. So Paul's writing to them and trying to, uh, trying to explain to them with all of these people, with their lenses fixed, they can't walk down the street without seeing this great display with great artistic design of Artemis. And Paul writes, saying these other words, saying, for we, you and I, dear brothers and sisters, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So what we have coming out of this picture is this idea that it's not that God is somehow, um, excuse me, it's not that people create art out of God, it's that God creates art out of people. We spend so much of our lives trying to make ourselves more lovable more acceptable, more pretty to God, and then we can come to him with less guilt. And what Paul is trying to write at a very foundational level is you're saved by grace. And this isn't about making statues and art to God. He has made you into his artwork for his renown, for his glory, which is a whole different perspective on how we might approach God as an offering. So there's this idea in, within uh, the Jewish thought, and it was common knowledge for Jews to understand the idea of good deeds. And a good deed would simply be translated um, uh, a mitzvah out of the Hebrew. A mitzvah would be directly translated into something like commands. Now, good deeds was central to their understanding, and the Hebrews understood good deeds and commands. Now, let me just say a word about commands. When we think of commands, and the, maybe the literal translation would be laws, uh, we think of laws as something to maybe kind of a gray area, something to sidestep, sort of like, it's only wrong if I get caught speeding if I go through a speed trap and he sees me. We can get around it. Um, it's only wrong if the IRS catches me on my taxes. But what the Hebrews understood from the laws or the commands of God is that God intended these commands to help us live in harmony with him and harmony with each other and harmony with our environment, that is our creation. So through the Torah, which is the Bible that Jesus essentially taught, we have the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have 613 commands. Now, before you want to walk out, because that sounds overwhelming, like I'm going to list 613 commands to be a part of Mission Hills Church, hear me out. 613 commands designed to help you, us, live in harmony with God. So central to the Jewish mind was this understanding of what it meant to do good deeds or to know how to pursue how to live in harmony. And he begins to write uh, some different words to try and explain how these commands actually uh, work out. 
And so scripture, especially when you read books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I mean, that, I mean, you might as well read like an engineering book. I, it, it, it reads tough, um, but it's all about the minutia of daily lives. See, what God intended was to somehow create a pathway to live in harmony with him and each other. So he starts writing these things and it's all about profit and it's all about land and it's all about debt and it's all about generosity and compassion. It's how to deal with your neighbors and how to deal with your enemies. And it's how, it's about clothing and it's about, um, it's about uh, uh, accumulating. It's about all of these things that we wonder, does the Bible actually speak to these things? So in their time, Torah was about crops and it was about lands, it was about savings, it was about interest. It covered the whole gamut of things so that we can have some sense about how to live in harmony. And then it begins to speak to things very specifically about prosperity, because the idea in a Hebrew mind about prosperity was always communal never individual. So the idea that you would keep getting richer at someone else's expense was contrary to the harmony or the intent of God. And so he was calling this people group out to somehow look out for the needs among us. We love those joyful noises. That is not a problem. We're good. But, um, so let me just illustrate it in a couple of ways. Um, there's a passage out of Deuteronomy 5.33. Walk in the way that the Lord has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. See, what were the commands? What were the mitzvah of God? It was look after the orphans. Look after the widows. Look after the aliens. Look after the refugees look after those who lack an education because it's always the most vulnerable among us who will be the most exploited among us and god's intent from the beginning was that the world would have this sort of shalom except shalom peace got broken sin entered it and he tried to create ways that we could restore the world that was intended we could restore the shalom of god and to recapture this harmony. So when you see the needs among you, don't think that God doesn't see it, but don't think that might not be part of your own calling or nudging. Let me read a couple other examples. In Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, he says, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his mitzvah always. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler meets Jesus one day and the rich young ruler comes to him and he says, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what he's really asking, now that you know that, what must I do to live in harmony with God? And do you remember Jesus' reply? Well, keep the commands. To which this guy in a very puffed up way says, all of these mitzvah, all of these good deeds, I have kept since I was a boy. So this was in the common vernacular and the common understanding of the day. One more, Jesus says later, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your mitzvah, your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. So since the idea of good deeds, since the idea of mitzvah and, and living in harmony was a way of life for them, many of the discussions that would take place in the synagogues, in the temple courts, every day would be about Torah, 
not just the Torah and the 613 commands, it's how to live in Torah. And one of the things that they would do was begin, I wanna say like a game, but you would show mastery. If you could be able to state and summarize the commands in not just the fewest words or the least commands, but the least amount of letters as possible. It was sort of this big throwdown. And so it was like, well, I do you remember there was an old game show I heard about it from my parents. Uh, no, it was an old game show. It was in the 70s and 80s, might have been in the late 60s. It was called Name That Tune. And there would be kind of a song that would play, and then contestants would ring in, like, I can name that tune. But then there would become a showdown, and they would be given a clue, and they'd stand over a buzzer. Um, and, or no, they'd look at each other, and they'd go, okay, we'll begin with you. And he'd say, well, I can name that in six notes. And then she would say, well, I can name that in four notes. And he'd say, well, I can name that in three. And she'd say, name that tune. And, and this was sort of like the banter, as people would try and summarize and interpret the commands of God. Jesus comes along in the middle of this fray and he stands up and someone asks him the question that was always and constantly being asked, Rabbi, what is the greatest command? And do you remember what he came up with? The greatest command that we know. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first mitzvah commandment. And the second is like, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and the prophets hang on these two mitzvah. Jesus summarizes 613 commands in two commands, simply saying, love God and love others as much as yourself. This was the great throwdown. It was like if they were having some kind of rap battle, it would be like, oh, no, he didn't. And he's like, oh, snap. And he was like, Jesus did this. And I think that was part of the amazement that he had such mastery over 613 commands. So what does that mean for us? I think it's significant for us in a couple of ways. What does it mean to follow after the heart of God? What does it mean to live into the way of Jesus in a way that looks beyond simple church attendance? What does it mean for us to integrate faith into the whole of life? To which I would say, what was understood was that when you began to follow a rabbi, a rabbi would begin to teach you their interpretation of it. And some rabbis would have some points of emphasis more than others. It was actually the very earliest beginnings of what we know of denominations. So some denominations are gonna promote the role and the activity of the Holy Spirit and others are gonna promote other things more than, so you understand that it's different points of emphasis. And so some rabbis would get really strict really legalistic about certain things while others would be super cavalier about it. So some rabbis would say, well, you can only walk no more than 50 yards on a Sabbath and you can't lift anything over three pounds on a Sabbath. And there would be this sort of technicality to somehow stay in favor with God. And so the most pious, the most devout had a very strict interpretation of Torah. Now, what it meant was these rabbis would begin to call their Talmudim. Talmudim were simply disciples, followers who would begin to not only follow their interpretation of the law, but follow their way of life. Except that 
Some made it so difficult to follow, so performance-based, so strict, so legalistic that it robbed him of complete life and joy, feeling like Big Brother was always ready to drop the hammer. Jesus, the master rabbi, comes along, and he's got a different word. You know what the word for, for the rabbi's interpretation was? It was a yoke. You would become yoked, like two oxen yoked together so that they could plow a field. You would follow a rabbi in their yoke, and some of it would be so constrictive and strained, and maybe some of you grew up in a church that felt like a really strict and, and legalistic and guilt-tripping kind of experience. Jesus comes along talking about his yoke as the master rabbi, and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul later writes to the church in Ephesus, say, don't forget, you're saved by grace in order to do good works. In other words, this isn't man trying to make some art out of God. This is God making art out of you. Come to me, even if you feel like you're a cracked pot. Come to me, even if you feel like you're a pile of ashes, because I can make something beautiful out of that. What I aspire to do as a faith community is simply create a way of life. I don't in any way say that I'm the master teacher, but what I realize, having grown up in church my whole life, is that we need the most practical, we need the most tangible we, uh, practices, or what I simply like to call rhythms. But I also know that faith can't be experienced in isolation. I understand my need, all of our needs, that faith not only needs to be practiced, it needs to be shared. So as I began praying and I began thinking, God, what is it you would do to unite a church? I didn't want to just plant a service. I wanted to plant a church. And what I mean by that is that we all hold faith so near, so dear, and yet so much of the time, the majority of our faith becomes what we do on Sundays in this service. And I wanted a way to think about faith as a lifestyle, as a way of living, so that we could be the church, whether we're gathered in a worship setting, or whether we're gathered in a living room, or whether you're on your commute, or dealing with difficult customers, or an impossible boss. How do we live into this way that feels so near, so dear? How can this way actually become transformational? Because after 30 years, the thing you don't need is for another 30-minute message from me. But how can something look transformational? To which I would say, here's seven rhythms. You want to know, where do these rhythms come from? I simply think of them as practices or expressions. They're not intended to be spiritually exhaustive. They're not sort of airtight that says, this encompasses everything. But I believe that if you and I, us together, can practice these, it will form Christ in us. But if we practice these, well, then I think it'll impact the cities, the neighborhood, the communities in which we live and, and work and breathe and have our being. So what are they? They're simple things. I listed them in your program. I've listed them on the website. But it's simple practices that I just want to live into. So it's things like hospitality. It's things like generosity. And it's things like renewal and compassion and gratitude. It's things like apprenticing. 
so that we can live into this way. I don't know if all of those things make total sense to you today, but what I would like to do is somehow create a way for us to share our faith one to another and have our faith affect our lives when we're not together. How would your kids know? How would the people closest to you know what you actually believe if we can't gather for this worship service? To which I would say, let's create a practice so that they can take notes because they're inheriting a faith whether we know it or not. I think this is a powerful way we can do that. Um, let me just close with one more story. It was a, a number of years ago I learned of a band and one of the things I love about living in Austin is the indie music scene. Um, and uh, I have had a musical Sherpa. My good friend Daniel is here tonight and he has, he's the guy who wears the shirt that says, I listen to bands that don't even exist. Uh, and um, we have made it uh, so much of our friendship to be discovering music downtown, him discovering and then telling me and then I'm going. Years ago, I went to this band um, and uh, I, I, I loved them. They're, they had been touring for a while. They'd actually been touring since actually the kind of the mid 90s, but you'd never heard of them before. They're from Pennsylvania and they were coming through town. Their name was Carbon Leaf. I love Carbon Leaf, um, began listening to them independent rock music, some alternative, some a little more acoustic, but they have a little range within there. And then over the next few years, they didn't come through Austin again. But I began listening to their music and I began seeing stuff that they were producing. And it was like, wait a second, this isn't Carbon Leaf. And they released this album and it was a Celtic album. What? And then they came out with another album and it was Americana. And then they did this rock album and they kept creating albums. And I remember going to their show about a year and a half ago downtown at the parish. And I went into the show and I was all excited and um, I had heard the latest album. So I thought that was the version I was going to be getting of them. But for my liking, they had become a little schizophrenic, like, who are you? Um, and so it was a great show, enjoyed it. But here's the thing, he was up there talking and everyone cheered for it, but he says, you know, we got signed by this band and then we didn't like being on the label. They were telling us stuff to do. And so we broke contract and we bought all this recording advice. And now we're recording all of our own music and there's no middleman. It's just us to you. And everyone cheers for the indie music scene of which I think is wonderful. Here's the problem. And I'm not celebrating labels and, and representation, except that we all need people in our lives to remind us of who we are to remind us of what we're capable of. We all need people that are willing to say, stop, no, this ain't your finest hour. Go back to the studio and keep working. You're not a Celtic band. You're an indie rock band. Stop trying to be Americana just because Mumford's at the top of the charts. Like put away your banjo. Like, have some kind of accountability, have some kind of sounding board, have some kind of people speaking into your life, reminding you of who you are. I can't think of a better idea or maybe analogy for what we need to grow in faith. See, without ongoing expressions of faith and without a community willing to walk with us, life will overwhelm us. The way of life that Jesus has called us into feels so countercultural that it becomes so challenging 
to keep up with. And the only way that I can keep taking a next step is because I have some friends in this room that remind me of who I am and what is true about me and what is true about God. As a community, I didn't want to just gather around a worship service. I wanted a community that could gather around some rhythms so that, again, we could be the church, whether we're together or whether we're apart. So as the kids come back to, uh, are going to start coming in, I just wanted to start with communion. We can eat in front of, or before they get here so we don't have to eat in front of them. And I love the picture of community um, and, and, and this, the Lord's table. Um, we, we've kind of made it out to sort of a sampler pattern. I mean, it was initially just a whole meal that we could share. In fact, we get done early enough tonight, maybe we can go out in some different ways and meet some folks for dinner. But Jesus made this really distinct picture. He used the analogy of a meal. I think he could have used other metaphors, but he understood our need to eat and our desire to eat. And I think what he was trying to do was cultivate an appetite for him and his presence. And so he uses this image of a meal on how to reconnect with him. And he says three things. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, do this with thankfulness and do this with sort of a reconciled heart. So when we remember him, we remember his death. We remember his, his price that he paid. What we remember, and he holds up the bread, and he says, this is my body, and it's been broken for you. We are reminded of Christ's brokenness. Maybe you can relate to brokenness, financially, relationally, physically, there are lots of broken areas of our life, and he says, I get it, me too. Emotionally, spiritually, he understands brokenness. But he doesn't leave us at brokenness because he holds up the cup, and he says, this is the cup that represents new life. And one of the things we understand about the cup, it represents his blood, is that if my body doesn't receive circulation to every last corner, then somehow I have to amputate. And so he doesn't just leave us in a broken state, even though he understands it. He brings his blood and he says, this is my blood. For as often as you break of this bread, drink of this cup, because this is the newness of life. I thought, what better way for us to consecrate a church, a gathering of folks, than to break bread and share a cup together. So Theo and Sally, if you want to come up and join us and, and Trevor, let me just pray a word of prayer. I'm just going to invite you to come up and you can line up right here at the front and take the elements as they serve you and then just return to your seat. Keep an eye out for the kiddos. I would simply say this too about having kids in worship. If you've ever traveled overseas, if you've ever been in developing countries, um, it's okay if kids get a little loud. Um, we're not a made-for-TV broadcast here. It's okay if it gets a little wonky in here. It's okay if kids stand on pews so that they can read the words, so that they can sing the songs, so that they can be a part of our offering because we want to have kids part of the worship. So let me pray. Father, I pray that you would center our hearts. We do this with gratitude. We say thank you for your price that you paid, that your grace saves us. We stand in that faith. We're reminded of the broken places of your life, and it resonates deeply with us. We thank you for your blood and how it covers us. And so we want to stand in the shadow of your cross tonight and say thank you. You're the risen Lord.
And so we take these elements and say, we love you. So remind us in these places of unreconciled relationship. Remind us of the places that we might need to come clean with you in confession so that we can have a right heart before you. Thank you that you see us as your work of art, your masterpiece that you're molding and shaping. Pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.